Hello and welcome to Keanu Club. Like a cool breeze over the mountains, this is episode 54, Constantine from 2005. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski, and back with us for our first time since the Matrix episode is John Brooks. Hello, John. Hello. So before we get into the religion and all that fun stuff of this movie, I want to talk about, I was talking to Mike about this offline this morning. I think... And I want to sort of have a, a philosophical debate here. I think this is not one of Keanu's five or ten best films, but I think it might be one of his five best film roles. <laughs> I think that there is, at the top, we have Neo, and then we have John Wick, and then we have Ted Theodore Logan, and then we have Johnny Utah, and then I would say maybe, there's a couple different ones for five, but I might put John Constantine in that fifth spot. I mean, this movie, like, it's definitely the upper half of Keanu movies, I think, for me, but what do you guys think about this as one of his best roles, potentially? Jack Traven is better than this, but for reasons that I will I will talk about in more detail later on, I kind of agree. Yeah, I definitely think this is one of my favorite Keanu types of roles, like the types that he sort of gets cast in now. This is somewhat what I think he'll perfect for John Wick. Like, this is what we'll see him sort of, this anti-hero type that he's crafting. We saw a little of it in Hardball with the chain-smoking religious dude, and here I feel like it's a like an evolution of that but i feel like this is a good type for him that he can pull off this like tough good guy sort of haunted but heroic yeah i really like him in this movie and what's weird is we did this movie for all his movies and we did the shia labeouf podcast and watching that was such a weird experience for me because as we talked about on that episode i didn't really watch the movie i just was waiting for shia to show up because i knew we would be doing it again for this and so shia is great in this movie i still love shia even when we're watching it for keanu but now i actually know like what's going on in the movie and like i'm actually like picking up on things like it was the weirdest way but i do want to mention like we talked about on that episode shia's in this movie nicholas cage was going to star in this movie with tarsum singh as a director and then Tarsum Singh said he couldn't make the movie he wanted to make with Cage, so he dropped out, and then Cage dropped out. So this is all kind of the perfect Cage Club podcast network film spanning all spectrums. And also, like we mentioned on that episode, I think one day we probably will do Tilda Swinton, maybe, and she's in this movie too. So it's kind of the perfect in all regards there. It's a big-ass Cage Club podcast network crossover episode. <laughs> yeah, and Tilda back just from last episode, Thumbsucker, which is cool. And, and I think the issue with us reviewing this for the Shia Club was or for all his movies is that he's not he's barely in this so I have a feeling like you hardly watched it that time like, I really there was just did nothing not watch to watch it. yeah there's just nothing to watch because he's hardly in it Shia I wish he was in it a lot more yeah so this time around like I, I feel like you're getting like a whole different perspective and a whole different movie out of it I think I was telling you like I, I was kind of bummed that I had to watch this so soon again I just don't really like to rewatch them this close together and I went I went from like forcing myself to watch this to like really getting into it and enjoying it and glad that I put it back on again this time like uh, throughout watching it, it it totally won me back over I, it's not like the greatest movie but it, it's really entertaining and a lot of fun so this is based on a DC comics comic book series right called Hellblazer I think like we talked about it on the Shia episode I don't want to keep mentioning it but I just can't ignore that we did that it was based originally on Sting. The character is based on Sting. And then to get this movie made, they basically need to Americanize it, sort of turn into like a California kind of guy and just turn it into Keanu. 
Yeah, Constantine in the comics, and they did like a short a short run TV show actually a live action he, he's a blonde Brit so like <laughs> I feel like he's still the same character surprisingly I feel like he's one of those strange characters like you could Americanize him and it'll still work so while it's not like visually the same I feel like the spirit of Constantine is still here And what I think works well, and maybe this is just because I saw Logan last night, but this movie reminds me of Logan because they're both kind of this like reluctant, not anti-hero, but like neither of them necessarily want to be doing what they have to do, but they both have a job to do. And I I, I sort of find comparisons between the two of those. And in an era where there's basically new comic book movies every three months in theaters, I think that this one still kind of holds up in ways because it seems unlike most comic book movies that have come since it. Well, it's unlike most movies, period. Also that. <laughs> Honestly, when I rewatched this movie, and I, I've seen it probably three times. I think I saw it in the theater when it came out. I know I've seen it since then when I rewatched it this week. I just, I, I can't believe this movie exists. And especially when you see the Warner Brothers logo at the beginning, and like knowing this is a major studio, major release movie. This is a $100 million movie. It is the weirdest $100 million movie I have ever seen in my life. (laughs) And, like, a lot of it is, frankly, an unmitigated disaster for, like, kind of interesting reasons and, like, not for it being a bad movie. Everybody's heart's in the right place, and a lot of this is... A lot of this movie's really cool. But it's so bizarre. And not, like, bizarre in terms of its storyline i mean this storyline is in lots of you know it's tv shows have been similar to this there's there's been a lot of movies with the whole like heaven hell dynamic before it's that the final product is just such a weird final product that it's it's almost baffling to think that this made it to, to theaters in the form that it's in i was definitely wondering how this movie got made i mean not just this time but i previously wondered how this movie got made and one thing i kind of came up with was that warner brothers loves it dark when it comes to superheroes they want everything to be you know dark and twisted exactly like Batman, I feel like they were in the center of all that Christopher Nolan Batman, and they were really like, we're good. Everything is going to be geared toward the gritty. So let's find the grittiest cursing, like make sure he curses, make sure he smokes cigarettes, make sure he like kicks around his sidekick. Let's just find something dark and gritty that we can put in theaters and show that DC is for adults who like comic book movies. Well, I mean, I, it just that's their pattern. I feel the other part of it, I think, is the Warner Brothers part, where I think it's there's parts of this movie that are clearly like you can hear the executives being like, give us more Matrix money, right? And like, it's, you know, make a different Matrix with Keanu Reeves as a different hero, but with the cool, like, slow motion effects and, like, weird playing with time stuff, you know, and, like, bizarre action sequences like in the Matrix. To me, like, the only reason that there's any way that Warner Brothers or any other studio would have done this is because it's Warner Brothers, they just did the Matrix, and they were like, let's milk some more money out of that, you know, Keanu Reeves as messianic hero shooting things, (laughs) Right, like subgenre we've created here, and I, I just don't see any how it would have been greenlit any other way. The important thing to note, though, is that what might even be crazier than the fact that this cost a hundred million dollars is that it made two hundred thirty million dollars. So this is a weird, weird movie that predominantly overseas where it made 154 of that, it made more than twice its budget. And even if you factor in like a crazy marketing budget, like this film still made money, which is weird because this is the kind of movie where you can be paying attention and then suddenly be like, wait, what is going on? Like it's 
convoluted in ways that are just kind of wonderful and also just baffling. Ba- totally, like baffling is the word for it. I honestly, when I was rewatching this and I was trying to think of like what is, and I've always sort of felt this way about this movie, and I'm trying to think like what is the correct analogy to what the experience of watching this movie is. And it's like either every scene feels like it has five minutes of scene missing that like you never get to see because you have no, <laughs> like every scene you have no idea what, like how the hell they got there and like what's happening. But everybody is playing it as though you've been told what's happening. So it's it's either like that or it's like if it's like the third part of a trilogy that you've walked in halfway through, right? It's like it's like watching like Return of the King starting at the hour and 50 minute mark and you're like, "Okay, sure, all this going." Like and as though the the filmmakers are like, "Yeah, we don't really care that you have no idea what the hell we're talking about right now. We're not going to give you any subplot, like any build up. There's no they just throw you into this weird, bizarre world and sort of expect you to know what's what's going on." I have a couple theories as to why that is. There's one kind of big one, which is maybe an obvious one, is that because this is based on comic books, they like combine characters into single characters and like turned what was one medium into this other medium and wanted to make it work as a movie instead of necessarily as like a story. So so that's part of my problem with this movie in general. And and it's the same problem I have with like Sin City and like a lot of these movies. That was actually my first my first theory, Joey, that you bring up, which is that like there's this element of it's a comic book, and it's not as though like the writers assume you've read the Hellblazer series or Sandman or like anything else related to Constantine. But it's almost as though like the people writing it don't realize that nobody knows what the hell they're talking about because they haven't read all of these comic books, and 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 the writers maybe had, and so they they're unable to speak to an audience that doesn't know the source material. And by the way, I've read Constantine comics, I've read Lucifer comics, I've read Sandman. I have a basis for this, and I'm still freaking lost. When I'm when I <laughs> yeah. when I'm watching this movie, so I think that probably is part of it. And one of the things that, as I said, like Sin City and other things that that frustrates me so much, that's so hard to do when you're adapting comic books. Is I'll talk about more of this with Constantine as well. But but it's this it's this inability, like this faithfulness versus adaptation problem that a lot of comic book adaptations have. Constantine is almost too faithful to the source material, and it doesn't realize that the stuff that works in the comic page doesn't necessarily work when you translate it into live action, which is my problem with Sin City from minute one to the end. It doesn't work as a moving picture, whereas other comic books do and are adapted in such a way that makes sense. I think that's one side of it. The other side of it, which I didn't realize until this time around when I was researching it, is that there's a whole storyline that is eliminated from this movie. And it's a storyline that features Michelle Monaghan, who used to be a star of this movie, who is cut from it, who is in one scene where she dies. And that's it. she says, oh, holy water. And that's basically it. Right. And she's in two deleted scenes, which are the same scene, just shot in different locations. (laughs) We we dove into this Michelle Monaghan craziness on all his movies, because like Mike watched behind the scenes and deleted scenes, because she was in Eagle Eye, which Mm -hmm. we did Mm. before this. Right. And we were talking about the thing. And like when Mike was describing to me what her role was in these deleted scenes, like I could, like I can't wrap, I still can't wrap my head around it. Like, it's insane. But I still think that maybe the whole disjointed feel of this movie would make more sense if, like, oh, hey, this whole plot line that was cut out and this whole character that was removed was there. I I don't know, but it can't have helped <laughs> to make this movie more coherent. Yeah, I definitely also get a sense of disorientation while watching this. I, I, I think partially, like, the movie wants to create that, but it's, there's times where it doesn't seem intentional, like, where it just kind of feels like flubbing the movie making or bad movie making or just, like, getting it wrong. I also feel like Shia was sort of the 
conduit for you know the audience and he disappears throughout the whole movie right, right? so there's no <laughs> character for anyone to explain anything totally, to throughout this totally accurate yeah and there's definitely you're right about the faithfulness like they felt comfortable enough making him american and you know changing his hair color but they didn't feel comfortable enough straying from a particular storyline that was like done in the comics right like that's how it feels to me like they're trying to adapt a particular story where all the elements to create a new story are here like you could still have characters from his past allies villains like all the people from the comics can show up but we don't have to be exactly like we are in the comics and we don't have to be doing the same things you know just make him this sort of street level exorcist who interacts with all these other weird magical creatures I don't know if maybe they went over the edge with the religious stuff in this as well. I was expecting it just to be more like generally based in the world of magic. But uh, I also feel like maybe they tilted it a little too far in that direction also. Like it's cool what they do with all that imagery and stuff, but sometimes it's a little overboard with like the demons and that type of stuff. I want to get back to that, but the weird thing about Keanu's performance in this movie is that he seems to be the only person who, maybe aside from Shia LaBeouf, The two of them are maybe the only people in this movie who understand what kind of movie this is. Everybody else in this movie appears to not know what they're in and what it is they're doing in this movie. And there's very weird performances from Peter Stormare and Tilda Swinton, which I'll get back to. Um, Which kind of makes it wonderful. It's weird how serious they are. Right. Like, the mismatch of performances is one of the things that makes this movie such a bizarre modern art experience to watch. (laughs) But, But the thing about... The way that Keanu and Shia LaBeouf play it is if you're at all familiar with the with the comic book world that this comes from, essentially what the whole world is, it's basically a creation of both Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman. And it, it grows out of the Sandman lore. And so the, the other characters who are sort of prominent characters are Lucifer and John Constantine. And they all have their own different books and they all sort of interact. And there's this like universe that, that's played out. But the whole universe is basically a film noir universe with supernatural characters. And the whole purpose of it basically is to take these sort of great mythic characters with these enormous mythic powers and massive consequences of the things that they do and boil them down into kind of that hard-boiled film noir storyline of, you know, sort of gritty, drinking, smoking, the sort of Dashiell Hammett kind of world. I think that Keanu Reeves gets that, and nobody else did. And like, so he's playing it almost like a like a Dashiell Hammett character, right? He's playing it like this down on his luck, private eye kind of character, and everybody else is involved with this like weird supernatural, epic struggle battle royale thing that's happening that Keanu just doesn't seem to be interested in. And so his character seems out of place almost within his own movie, which is really weird and part of what makes this movie and why it's such a weird adaptation. Like, it's a hard thing to adapt because turning this supernatural world into a film noir works really well on the page, but it's really hard to do in a major budget, major studio movie. And you know what that reminds me of, both as an adaptation and, like, feeling out of place in your own movie, which would come out one year later, which we covered in another podcast, is Cage in The Wicker Man, where he's playing (laughs) one very different kind of movie than everybody else is. Right. You know, because we talked about on that episode that he and the director, Neil LeBute, wanted to make this like really black comedy where just like crazy things were happening and no one else went along with it and so because of that he's like overacting and like being crazed in this movie where everyone else is just taking things very seriously 
And I never thought about it until you were just describing it there, but like a Constantine Wicker Man remake double feature would be like amazing oh. to see two great actors really like doing their own thing and working in both of them and then just not at all matching everything else around them. Well, great performers, if not actors, but... <laughs> But the thing to me, like, that what's really mind-blowing is, like, what was Rachel Weisz told about this role? Because Rachel Weisz is perfectly capable of playing the smoldering damsel in distress who walks into the guy's office and is like, you know, my sister's been killed, right? Like, perfectly capable of that kind of a role. And yet here she is, like, it's, and it's, it's just weird. Like, it just doesn't, not, it's so boring and plain and none of it works. And she's great. And I, she's so wasted. Now that you mention all that noir stuff, it's clicking in my head a lot better. Like, if they went more Maltese Falcon with this, like, yes. it's so strange that she's the hard-boiled detective. Right! Like, what? <laughs> like, she's the detective? <laughs> but that strangeness like, is, <laughs> never, is never brought up because she's just, like, a boring detective. Like, it's, it's there's nothing at all outlandish about her character it's all very sort of just played so straight we will also the fact that she's a detective has little bearing on anything right in this nothing movie. <laughs> like i think the only time that it matters is at the maybe at the very beginning and then that one time where she goes to keanu's apartment like the third time they meet after he's a dick to her twice and she basically is able to get in because she flashes her badge after that it is irrelevant what she does she's just like a person yeah, it feels almost like a rewrite to punch up the character a little more or something <laughs> like that. Like, she's a twin, right? So it's not just like she, like, one of her characters kills herself and then the other one is just going to be, you know, a girl that needs to be helped the whole movie. I'm sure there was some kind of note where it's like one of these needs to be tougher or we need to do something to sort of amp her up a little bit. I would have been perfectly fine if she was never a detective in this movie either. She could still just be some girl looking for her sister and be just as tough as someone who was a detective, right? Like, she doesn't need the badge to act that way. What does John Constantine do for money? Oh, God, How does yeah, he, like how a, does yeah. he think, live in this I think, world? I don't think they show it, but I think the church must pay him for something. Like, that's my feeling. Like, I don't know if you guys ever saw the horrible movie Van Helsing. Well, it's not horrible. It's just very sort of childish. It's, like, awesomely uh, horrible. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But in that, he's sent around the world to slay these monsters for the Vatican, and they, like, pay his way and give him money and stuff. So I, I sort of just had this feeling that either the church is paying him under the table or he is um, running that bowling alley, right? Isn't that what he, he lives in that bowling alley? Right. So I yep. just assume. Yeah, I yeah. guess? Because, yeah. I mean, like, we know that Shia makes money probably from, like, driving a taxi around. Constantine just, he just exists in this world. Like, it's weird that Rachel Weisz has a job and he doesn't really have a job. Right. That's all I mean by that. It's just strange. <laughs> yeah, or they should have, I mean, he's got, like, that whole sort of crew of support, right? He has, like, a priest, the other guy who who has, like, the devil's Bible or the demon's Bible. He's got, like, a little support group, so maybe they chip in every once in a while to pay his rent somehow. Or, I don't know. That, that was a little confusing at one point, so I was just like, well, he must own that bowling alley. How else does he live there? Oh boy, I it's 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 baffling in its beauty. I I really just I just don't know. I guess we should get into the crazy exorcism stuff that he does. Yeah. So okay, so I could do it. It's not going to come out of my mouth well. Do one of you want to try to explain sort of succinctly what half breeds are, like what the plot of this is, what the war between heaven and hell is in this movie? <laughs> I mean, I basically know as much as the movie told me right. Right. that God and the devil made a wager for all the souls on Earth, but they couldn't be directly involved. And then I don't exactly know if this is explained in the movie or how it is, but there are half-breeds on both sides. There's like 
half angel humans and half demon humans they don't explain how they're spawned or born or created (laughs) Uh, we get sort of a post credit scene that hints to how they're created but they exist and they're the ones that are sort of the hand of god and the devils influencing the actual humans heaven and hell are right here behind every wall every window the world behind the world and we're smack in the middle Angels and demons can't cross over onto our plane. So instead, we get what I call half-breeds. The influence peddlers. They can only whisper in our ears. But a single word could give you courage, or turn your favorite pleasure into your worst nightmare. Those with the demon's touch, like those part angel, living alongside us. They call it the balance. I call it hypocritical bullshit. So when a half-breed breaks the rules, I deport their sorry ass straight back to hell. I don't get them all, but... I've been hoping to get enough to ensure my... retirement. So, that's basically what's happening around this world and Constantine exists within this world but they don't explain his powers either necessarily we just know that he has magical powers but he's not a half-breed he can see demons I think is his thing right he was born that way yeah just like but Lady along Gaga. the line somewhere along the line he learned how to be an exorcist because he's like you know, immigration for demons. Well, because he just, I, like, sends them back to hell. I feel like, and there's, this, this isn't, like, it's it's kind of touched on in one scene, but we find out that Rachel Weiss and her dead twin, Isabel, they could both see demons the same way that Keanu did. And Rachel Weiss just pretended that it never happened. Her sister embraced it, was institutionalized, and then before the movie begins, like, right before the movie begins, the sister kills herself. And so I guess that's, they could maybe go into this in more ways, but it feels like they're not even interested about, like, how to embrace or reject the gifts that you have. Keanu and Isabel both ostensibly embraced the gift they had. One went toward good, and one went toward not helpful, maybe? Or just, like, society said, you're not productive, we're going to lock you. Like, I don't know, I don't know if that's necessarily a decision on her part, but there could have been something there, and the movie just didn't do that. Nope. (laughs) That's <laughs> true. No, no. The movie, the movie is about the spear of destiny has been found by the devil's <laughs> son and wants to be brought back to Earth. Like that's what the movie's actually about. Like that's the big mystery. It's just the rest of that is just context. Would you be for, forgiven you, for like not remembering by the time the movie's over that like that was the plot that you were told at the very beginning of it and have since completely forgotten about like Mammon and you know the spear of destiny <laughs> and like oh right yeah that thing is uh, the thing that I'm supposed to be caring about by the time this movie's over. This um, is absolutely a movie that I read the Wikipedia summary after I was done because I'm like, what is going on? Yeah, like, what the oh, hell right, Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. That Like, it's all there. It's just, like, it's not presented in a way that tells a story that you can recite. Like, you can sort of enjoy what's happening, but if you had to explain what was going on, be like, I don't know, like, they were in Mexico? If you want, like, the sort of concise or the like more normal version of this story watch ghost rider because it's practically the same thing like substitute the dagger for the contract and you know you still have the devil's son trying to take over the world by gaining all the souls on earth or what have you being brought back to the mortal plane so he could rule it like it's basically ghost rider uh, which is kind of funny because cage was ghost rider sort of like the marvel universe 
Constantine, if you will, I guess. That's all I kept thinking. I was like, uh, it's not that important in the scheme of things. What I'm enjoying more than anything else is the look of this movie, pretty much. Like, yeah. That keeps yeah. No, it's, sinking it's, me It's in. an incredibly... Honestly, like the design of the movie is incredible. It's it, it's so rich and beautiful and and weird looking, and I love it. But like a lot of time was spent on a lot of these shots, and the shots are for scenes that like don't make any sense. So it's really hard to appreciate the beauty of it. But like that scene at the end with Lucifer and like the shattered glass is like so well done. You know that bullet time whatever technique that they were using there is 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 fantastic. But it's this like awesome beautiful scene with like no payoff whatsoever because you're like what is happening right now the whole time you're watching it as opposed to just marveling at like the you know dramatic intensity of that happening in fact the ending and the dialogue between lucifer and constantine and their their sort of weird one-upmanship thing that's going on there is the most coherent thing in the movie like <laughs> right like that that ending sequence but i still don't quite get like what the stakes were supposed to be like why i'm supposed to be really happy that constantine won you know in the end it's so confusing but yeah it's i mean a lot of these sequences and shots are really stunning even today even with you know the 12 years later standards that we apply to cgi and what have you it's it's uh certainly it's worth looking at if nothing else i mean i think the reason you're supposed to be happy that keanu beats lucifer at the end is because you're supposed to be on his side through the movie, and all he wants to do is go to heaven because, oh, I guess, okay, so this is also another thing that they could have really dived into more that they didn't. I forgot until I started just saying this thing, but when Constantine was 15 years old, he killed himself and then was revived. But because he killed himself, he was damned to hell. And so at this point in his life, he's dying of cancer because he smoked basically it seems like since he came back to life he smoked 30 cigarettes a day just i guess to get deal with the stress so anyway he wants to get to heaven and so in the end he finally one-ups lucifer because after he kills himself again he does such a selfless act in saying the only thing i want from you in exchange for my soul or whatever the deal that peter stormare offers him is let Rachel Weiss's dead sister let her soul go to heaven. He's like, nah, fine. And then because that's such a generous thing, which I guess, he's no longer able to be dragged to hell, and so he wins over Peter Stormare, who then revives... It's all crazy. Who then revives him... <laughs> keeps going. <laughs> ...like Trinity... Like, like Neo saves Trinity in Reloaded when he scoops the bullet out of her heart. No, he doesn't win him over. He, he's, he's about to go to heaven because God is rewarding him for his selflessness. So he's about to go to heaven, but so Stormare, so Lucifer can't drag him to hell, but he can't keep him on earth. So, okay. So what he does is... He pulls, scoops the is, cancer out. Scoops the cancer out, which prevents him from dying, which prevents him from going to heaven, which means that while he may still have a ticket to heaven, he still has to live out his life on earth. And that's all that Lucifer can do to him is like prevent his eternal bliss and force him to live on the reality that he hates but he can't drag him to hell anymore so it's like lucifer is just getting the best deal he possibly can out of it he hasn't decided to take pity on him or anything it's it's this is this is the the worst he can do is prevent him from entering heaven and then hopefully give him enough time to hang himself with his own rope in the time remaining so that he that he returns to hell yeah it's it's lucifer's belief that if constantine spends another 30 or 40 years on earth he's so damaged or such a bad person right that he'll re-damn himself to hell right but you know at the end of the movie you know we see keanu chewing gum instead of smoking cigarettes so he's he's, <laughs> he's turned over a new that's leaf. called the character arc <laughs> 
Well, the one thing I kept thinking of when he was being lifted to heaven by God, or like with the, you have like the angels singing and everything. Keanu flips off the devil, yeah. gives him the finger. Yeah. All I kept thinking That's of so was Keanu. the end. Uh, now, spoiler for this is the end, but when Franco is being uh, raptured in the end, and he starts giving everybody the finger because no one else is, and then he stops getting raptured and he gets dropped back down to earth and he gets murdered by everybody on the floor. So I just was kept waiting for God to be like, wait a second, you're giving giving him the fingers like. Up, you're going back down, buddy. Which, by the way, marks at happen. least the second time, and maybe he does it in Devil's Advocate. We have to go back and look, but at least the second time that Keanu gives the finger to the devil or the devil analog character in a movie. Because remember, in the first Matrix, he goes, How about I give you the finger and you give me my phone call, right? <laughs> So, I wonder how many times he gives the finger throughout his career I, that's, in movies. We, you I'd need love to, like, to check. Go back and do all this again, and just like look for. I'm sure it's in Hardball. I mean, he finger. was such a prick in that movie. Yeah. I also liked how I kept thinking about how since this was how Mammon was supposed to be the devil's son, yeah. how if it was Keanu from The Devil's Advocate who showed up as the end, <gasps> oh, the, end, the devil's that son. Yeah, that, I wrote that down too. <laughs> what a cool crossover that would have been. Then the movie would have made sense. We'd be like, oh, I get it. It's a sequel to The Devil's <laughs> Advocate. If just a second. Keanu shows up? Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Can we talk about how Mr. Gwen Stefani was Balthazar? All right, so, yes. like, okay, this is the thing. Like, the one thing I want to know about this movie is, I, like, I want to be there. I'm going to go back in time and be there for the conversation that was like, well, we can't get Jude Law, so what do we do? I have a, I have a crazy idea. Let's call the lead singer of Bush. <laughs> Right to play the Jude Law character in this movie, and like, obviously that's what happened because nobody like thinks of Gavin Rosdale first, right? And he's like playing Jude Law the entire time. Is this the only thing he's in? Because I, the way I went to it was well, Constantine is based on Sting, who was a musician. So oh, let's nice. get a musician to play a part in this movie somehow. Somebody. Let's get a musician who's, who based who's himself on to Kurt get Cobain. Into the movies. Right. He's been in 14 things. This was his fourth what? one. Um, He's that much of an actor? Oh, well, he was... Uh, okay, so of the 14 things, one is the video game adaptation of this. He plays himself in Zoolander. But he's in... Actually, he's in a handful of TV shows. He's in Little Black Book. He's in Constantine. He's in The, he's Bling, in the Bling Ring, Ring. Which is... That's... Okay. All right. But what's weird is that Peter Stormare <laughs> auditioned for this part. Oh, my God. We have to talk about Peter Stormare and how, like, horribly miscast he is as well. But he's awesome. <laughs> and, like, oh. Yeah. God. Okay. Yeah, he's a he's almost I mean, in a weird way, he's almost unrecognizable. To me, I kept going like, is that him? Yeah, that's him, but it's like not the him I'm used to. He's doing weird things with his face. He's speaking in an American accent. It's just these are all over the map with that performance, but I love it. It's it's full of something. It's certainly I mean, it's not the Lucifer from this world. And that Lucifer is is much more of a uh, it's much more like cuz well, the TV show Lucifer is based on is set in this world. Right, that's it's from the the Vertigo comics version of him that is in the Constantine Sandman Lucifer world, and that's a much better adaptation. It's much closer to the Lucifer of the comics. This one is a very like it's just flat out weird. 
this for Morningstar in the comics is like this, you know, kind of like a James Bond type almost. He's he's very like into like drinking and partying and having a good time and like punishing people and like it's it, he's very it's it's very decadent the kind of a character. So this character as like the psychologically unhinged but like weirdly compelling Peter Stormare Lucifer. It's weird. It's like what, certainly one of my favorite parts of the movie, but it, it's not. It's it's where they veer away from the source material in a pretty epic way is is with the characterization of Lucifer with Peter Stormare. I, it's it would have made more sense to me actually to have Gavin Rosdale in that role because that Gavin Rosdale is much closer to who he is in the in the original incarnation. This actually kind of reminds me, and this is sort of vague-ish spoilers, but nothing that wasn't spoiled in the first trailer for The Bad Batch, but Keanu's in this new movie coming out next month in April called The Bad Batch, which is directed by Lily Rose Amanpour, who did A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, and he kind of plays a character that is, maybe just because they both wear white suits and maybe my brain's playing tricks on me, but it feels like this Peter Stormare character. So I feel like Keanu could have played the devil really well here, too, if he wasn't the star of the movie. Possibly, yeah. I think I would love to see uh, Keanu take on the devil role one day in his career. He's still got time left to come back and do like more horror. What I was thinking about with this version of the devil is they kind of just went for a more popular version in, in the sense that he's just like monstrous and strange and scary, right? Like he doesn't, he's not like red with horns. He's not like cool, like, but a dick. He's like somewhere in this middle ground of just like, you can't comprehend what the devil is. So just fucking go nuts and create whatever you want to do with him. Let's have his feet drip tar. You know, let's have him speak with a weird lisp. Let's just go nuts with it. So maybe Stormare just kind of invented this version of it by himself. Maybe he was given free reign. I, I think that's probably perhaps. the case. And I think that's kind of, that gets back to what I was saying before, that, that this feels like a movie where nobody was really quite sure what, what movie they were making. And because the, like the moment in the movie is the moment in the in the noir film where like you know it's the showdown with the mafia boss right where it's like the downtrodden anti-hero kind of outsmarts the the mafioso and and that is really like what lucifer is in this comic book world it's, it's like a bugsy siegel kind of a kind of a character right so like uh, a kind of high society type of mobster who also has this control over people's destinies and so forth and so while i loved the weirdness of the peter stormare scenes and 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 the way it all plays out that's what baffles me is i'm like this is obviously that point in the movie this is obviously that point in the sort of film noir story like why are you going in this direction with it it doesn't make any sense but you know that's again that's just because this movie doesn't really make any sense again the, the only person that like shia labeouf seems to understand he's in a noir film right like he's playing that like hey mister you know that right like look at me i can do it too huh huh mac right but jaiman hunsu like i'm like what is going on okay anyway so yeah like it's a really cool a great devil performance and it's and it's very well characterized in a different movie it would have been awesome but in this movie especially in this climax i'm like what where, where are you going like what are you trying to do with all this that's my overall frustration with this movie obviously you're the one soul i would come up here to collect myself mm-hmm so I've heard. You mind? Oh, go, go right ahead. I've got stock. Coffin now. Very fitting, John. And now when you cut too deep, you cut the tendons. 
Finger movement goes out the window. Let me help you. One thing I do like, can I say something I do like? What I think is really cool in terms of maintaining the sort of medieval Inferno, Paradise Lost, all that sort of thing, lore of angels and demons and so forth, is that Tilda Swinton plays Gabriel. Because yeah. because in, in traditional medieval art and Renaissance art, angels are supposed to be without gender. So they're supposed to be androgynous. Like you're not supposed to draw a female or male angel. They're understood to not have a gender identity, which is like... Great, Tilda Swinton. Like, like that makes makes perfect sense. And they really do play it up. Like, you're never quite sure if, if Gabriel is like male or female, and it doesn't matter. And 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 that was really well realized, and I think very authentic. When she's on screen, is some of the best moments in the movie. That's when it really kind of works for me. Unfortunately, they're they're few and far between. But that's a cool thing to see because you see so much in, especially in Hollywood, of like the angel as a person with wings, as opposed to like this very sort of different androgynous creature that Tilda Swinton kind of uniquely is among Hollywood actors. She's a weird person and she has a little bit of that like deliberate asexual vibe to her. So I thought that was great. Great casting and great depiction. My mind drifted again to another Cage movie when he played an angel. (laughs) Uh, I did too for a second. I was like, that was the example I was going to use, right? was like the City of Angels. Yeah. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you though, John, is what's up with Gabriel as far as does it represent anything close to the actual source material? Not like the comics, but I mean, you know, like religious lore. And does this Gabriel translate well? It's a weird thing because there have been a couple movies where Gabriel has basically like fallen down or started down the path of Lucifer, where the prophecy is probably the biggest example where Christopher Walken plays Gabriel and Gabriel basically decides to do what Lucifer did and like start another war with God. I think there's a couple other instances of this. Is, is Gabriel who Alan Rickman is in Dogma? My other uh, reference for angels on earth or yeah ben and matt damon walking around dog <laughs> alan rickman plays metatron oh okay oh all the right, voice all right, right? All right you know gabriel's not in dogma so the prophecy is the one that springs to mind and yeah i don't know where this kind of idea comes from but the sense so gabriel is basically one of the few named angels within jewish and christian lore who is the one who's like the announcer like gabriel is the one that announces to mary that she's pregnant and all this sort of thing so i think the reason why sometimes it's played with as though gabriel might kind of turn on god is because gabriel basically takes over from lucifer as the preferred angel so before lucifer decides to rebel and fall Lucifer is the favorite child, right? Lucifer is like the golden boy. Once Lucifer has fallen and become the devil, that leaves Gabriel in Lucifer's place. So while there's no, like chicanery with Gabriel in classic literature or in biblical literature, it does kind of make sense that if you want to tell another story of like another angel kind of like playing with the rules and trying to do his own thing, like Gabriel would be next on the list. Cool. Okay. Yeah, I I caught that Gabriel had like kind of a like a reason it has one speech where she's like god like gave you all this and you know you do nothing or you're squandering she she has it out for humans in particular because they are god's chosen children now or something so i i caught some resentment within the character somewhere you judging me now john (sighs) betrayal murder genocide Call me provincial. I'm simply seeking to inspire mankind to all that was intended. By handing Earth over to the son of the devil? Help me here. (laughs) You're handed this precious gift, right? 
Each one of you granted redemption from the Creator. Murderers, rapists, and molesters. All of you. You just have to repent. And God takes you into his bosom. In all the worlds, in all the universe, no other creature can make such a boast, save man. It's not fair. There's a lot of like weird angel sort of sub-scripture. Angels don't actually appear all that much as major characters in the Bible. So most of it is like romantic poetry that came that came afterwards. So you can really kind of do whatever you want with angels. But like there is a logic to it that, that Gabriel would be the one that you would want to explore as a character if you take where Gabriel sort of ends up within the lore and, and, and apply it elsewhere. Well, how often do angels appear in the Hell Bible? <laughs> yes, which that's great. Because yeah. there's a line where Keanu's talking about the 17th act in Corinthians. Right. Rachel Vice says, there is no 17th act. And he goes, it goes to 21 in hell. And she has a perfect answer. She's like, there's Bibles in hell? Like, what? Like, what is going on? Right. John, there is no 17th act in Corinthians. Corinthians goes to 21 acts in the Bible in hell. They have Bibles in hell paints a different view of revelations. It says the world will not end by God's hand, but be reborn in the embrace of the damned. Though if you ask me, fire's fire. I wondered about the watch at the end, right? When it freezes. Yes. Okay. What time is it? It's 522, right? Yes, which is coincidentally the date of The Matrix Reloaded came out. Okay. There were a lot of IMDb trivia things about numbers that I, I just didn't copy because I figured you would know all the significance of all those anyway. Right. So Revelation 22.5 is there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, and the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So I'm wondering if like that is the significance of the, of the watch being at 522, that it's a reference to Revelation 25 and like cause this whole thing of you know this being like the moment where John doesn't have to be a slave anymore right there will be no more night he doesn't have to live in the dark anymore that's the best that I could come up with <laughs> of like what the significance of that was but I wondered if you Joey in your infinite trivia research of these movies had come across anything more satisfying than that well, it's pretty satisfying, but I, I, I it, it seems a little bit tangential. Oh, no. The only thing that I saw about the watch was that it stops at one time and, and starts one minute later, which is that whole scene just took one minute, even though in real life it took much more. Like, that's not trivia. Get out of here. Get out of here, IMDb. Oh, no, I didn't see anything any cool numbers. The only numbers things were just like, he smoked 13 cigarettes, which is considered unlucky. Right, right. Or yeah. on Isabel's toe tag, there's a number 616, uh-huh. which some people say is the number of the devil instead of 666. Right, yeah. Things yeah, like yeah. that. Okay. All right. Fair enough. One of the things I also really like, we haven't really talked about this, though, the production design of like the hell and heaven sequences, but especially the hell ones. Yeah. So it's one of the it's things modeled that... after atomic bomb stuff. Yeah. So it's like a little bit of like the Terminator 2 post the Skynet, right? Like scenes. Yeah. Sarah's dream. Combined with like William Blake illustrations. It's really cool like it's really good and i noticed a lot because this is the first film directed by francis lawrence who went on to direct i am legend and then the second third and fourth hunger game movies oh okay right so like those are his big his big things and i noticed a lot of it, it seemed like a lot of the ideas that he was playing with here 
you can see play out I Am Legend in terms of design of, of some of the demons and that sort of thing. Uh, and there's a lot of like similarities in sort of the atmospheric way that it's, it's portrayed. But one of the things I really think is cool about the Hell sequences is the way that they kind of live right in that space between sort of reality and dream, that there's something very kind of like surreal and dreamlike about the way that stuff moves there and that the CGI is almost like deliberately not quite convincing. Like it seems like it's it's immersive, but like they're not quite there. They're not quite in it. Uh, and I think that's a really cool interpretation. I like that the idea being portrayed that in some way, like these spaces of heaven and hell are in some way like fantasy or dreamlike. That they're not quite, they exist in the mind in some way. They're not like the very defined fire and brimstone lava places uh, that you sometimes see in those depictions. So, like, artistically, I thought that was a really cool touch to this movie that, that should not be overlooked. Well, I think it's important that this movie does nothing really by the book in terms of, like, taking things... Which like, book, it's all, it's, Joey? It's doing the real its own book thing. or the hell book? <laughs> no, it's just doing its own thing, so of course it wouldn't keep the old traditional sort of fire and brimstone. It would want to do its own thing and just sort of be weird with it. Yeah, but it's not even like the design so much as like the way that it plays, the way that like things look in that space, I think is is yeah. really cool and very well thought out. I get really frustrated sometimes when we show images of like heaven and hell in movies that are basically just earth with clouds or something. That it's that that feeling of what it really means to be in a sort of a timeless immortal space that is more you know spiritual than real is very difficult to translate to film, and I think this movie does a really cool job of, of, of doing that and combining a lot of the ideas of the nuclear holocaust plus these like classic sort of romantic period William Blake images that he that, that were appeared in Paradise Lost and Dante's Inferno of these sort of monstrous horrific demons the design of the demons is also really cool it's very well thought out so and again so there's a number of things that are overwhelmingly good in a movie that like is not deserving of them in some fundamental way but like the war between heaven and hell itself this movie maintains a certain balance that I <laughs> somehow <suppose>. survives <laughs> till the end <laughs> can i say one thing that drives me freaking nuts about this movie that i just hate as a trope in this type of movie there's actually two sure. things one when like angelic figures speak in king james bible english it drives me insane because gabriel's like the thy thou art like so and so and and you know there's literally like one period of history where bibles were written in that language and it was the first english translation of the bible that went mainstream that was the king james version that's where we get the whole like the thou so on and so like why isn't she speaking hebrew i mean like whatever it's not it's it's so absurd that you make heaven characters tilda making a decision speak in the king james bible bible english (laughs) and the other trope that i despise is the whole like demons are afraid of latin that drives me nuts (laughs) why do they have to speak latin for their exorcisms why are demons only responding to this language and poor keanu reeves has to like butcher latin as he's as he's trying to exercise this demon
and Shia and Shia. Yeah, and that's yeah. When, that's what's cool. That's one of two moments in the film where Shia just busts out this skill. Yeah, where nobody else knows that he and has it's it. It's the worst like, skill in all of movies, and I hate it. Yeah, but. it is. But he also, you know, earlier in the film when he's like, "You shouldn't be sitting on the bench if you're not ready to play." When he's like making, you know, <laughs> demon bullets and just talking about like what to do. It's like, yeah, Shia. He's been in the movie for four minutes up to that point, and he's kind of like the pivotal hero right now. Yeah. <laughs> As a religion person, like, that is the thing that I just, like, I cringe whenever I see that in movies and TV shows, is, like, the, the demon who's afraid of Latin. Uh, well, how about how about when Constantine was going to send Balthazar to heaven by absolving him of his yeah. sins? <laughs> I mean, how crazy did that make you feel? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty ridiculous. Yeah. Like, that's a cool concept, you know? Like, it I is. get it. Like, as a, as a writer, like, I could see that being, like, a funny way to sort of turn the tables on a demon, right? Like, I'll send you to heaven instead. But, I mean, it's just, it just seems so ridiculous that a demon wouldn't realize like he'd have to ask for absolution first right like he wouldn't know the rules like he's a demon i just feel like he would be well versed in all the ways he could be destroyed i'm like what happens uh, when demons not. die like that's like when balthazar died i'm like well then what happens now is he like is he going to like a second hell is it like a like a hell for when you die in hell or like what's, well, was what's, balthazar, what's next? balthazar was a half breed right so yeah. he probably just goes to hell and then has to wait in line he has to queue up to wait in line to become another half breed maybe i don't know okay all right whatever it doesn't make any sense all right. I don't think it's worth figuring out because it no. probably doesn't have a logical but answer. But that's the sort of thing I'm thinking about while watching this movie that I'm, is a jumbled mess that I'm like, well, sure. let me have this conversation. Uh, there were two things in this movie that reminded me. We were talking earlier about The Matrix, but Keanu stumbles through a club and it's playing music that feels like it's from The Matrix. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> it's on his way out. Yeah. The music on the way out where I'm like, is that from The Matrix? I swear to God it is. Yeah. And then later in the movie when they're in the hospital and like they bless the sprinkler system and the sprinkler system gives off the holy water there's basically like a slow-mo fight in the rain and I was like oh like this is just Warner Brothers like taking ideas and being like yeah you just here here you go just use these yeah, shove this well, there's there. even a moment where a mirror starts to warp yeah right like <laughs> yeah. Kind of like in yeah, the yeah, Matrix yeah. too and then it explodes yeah. Yeah. which is a, again a really cool shot like that whole sequence is awesome yeah it just it seems so weird that they spent a hundred million dollars making this movie when they could have done it for basically nothing and it probably would have been better that's like that's the weird thing is like all these great sequences that are as I said like it had to have been someone at Warner Brothers being like, give us more Matrixy things. All these great sequences, you know, they're awesome and they're beautiful and they're very well executed, but like the movie would have been better without them. The movie would have been better as a hard-boiled detective story stripped away of all of that grandeur. I have a really hard time with my emotions about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it would work especially as a hard-boiled detective story because Keanu in this movie has a way of selling these one-liners or sort of offhand dickish remarks that in the hands of like just about anybody else I would be groaning at but I don't know I don't know what it is about him maybe it's just because we finally reached the point of Stockholm Syndrome where we're like on board with Keanu I don't know but like there's a couple times in this movie where like he has that line like $200 shirt by the way the first time he meets Rachel Weiss and she asks him to hold the elevator and she says going down he's like not if I can help it which is that like an oral sex joke I don't know maybe he says it in a way that I'm like, yeah, that's like a, he just doesn't care. He's just Constantine being Constantine. And I don't know what it is because those are the exact kind of lines where like I roll my eyes and like, come on, guys. But here, I really don't know why it works. Hold the door. you going down. I if I can help it. The way I sometimes think about this movie is 
you guys have both seen Brick with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, the Ryan Johnson movie, right? It's almost as though if it was like Joseph Gordon-Levitt were the only person buying into the whole like film noir element of Brick, and everybody around him were just in like a regular movie about high school. <laughs> like that's kind of how I feel about Keanu Reeves in this movie half the time. That he's like selling all these lines and he's maintaining this weird, cold persona with this with this very kind of drawn out way of talking that feels very uncomfortable and forced, but makes sense for the kind of movie he's trying to be in and nobody else is buying in. But that is, like, if you just removed all of the other characters from Brick and just, like, shoved it in 10 Things I Hate About You or something like that, uh, (laughs) that's kind of the way this movie plays. So how do you think this movie would play if instead of Keanu, either Mel Gibson or Kevin Spacey were in the lead role? Because they both were considered to star as John Constantine. I feel like Kevin Spacey would have been like, I was in L.A. Confidential. I know how to make a real noir. Right. Like, I'm not going to stand for this shit. Like, we are we are going back to rewrites. <laughs> I see him as Frank Underwood, but, like, instead of doing these, like, one-line dickish offhand remarks, he's turning to the camera and saying them. And I just... Uh, that's a movie <laughs> that I want to see. Like, we talked about in The Devil's Advocate how the ultimate invention is to put anybody in any movie. I don't want to see Kevin Spacey as Constantine. I want to see Kevin Spacey as Frank Underwood as Constantine. That's what I want to see. Yeah, and I, I often wonder, like, whenever I see these, so-and-so is also considered for this role thing. Like, I'm sure it's true to some degree, but I don't know enough about the inner workings of the casting negotiation process in major studios that if there really would have been any circumstance under which they would have allowed Kevin Spacey or Mel Gibson to play the role of John Constantine, or if it's some kind of, like, weird negotiating ploy that they use. There's, like, if someone just throws out a name, right, of, like, someone that they think of, and they're like, oh, yeah, he was considered to play John Constantine, because, like, someone in a room was like, uh, Kevin Spacey? I don't know. Is he free? You know, and then somebody else was like, no, that's stupid. Let's move on to somebody else. I'm never quite sure how much stake to put in those things, but it's certainly it's a nice thought experiment, <laughs> I'm sure if Mel Gibson was Constantine, though, it would teeter completely into the absurd side and we'd lose any sort of sense of noir that Keanu was bringing to this or trying to fill this with any sense of fun, even. I just, I almost feel like it would have gone even further off the rails with a Mel Gibson. Well, it, it has, it has the, like, the, the, you know, the Christ-like death and resurrection redemption scene that Mel Gibson requires all of his characters have. Uh, <laughs> so I guess maybe someone saw that and was like, well, it's the kind of thing Mel Gibson likes to do. You know, he gets tortured at the end, so Mel Gibson likes that. I don't really know why, I mean, with the sort of surplus of possible British actors who could have played Constantine, why they decided to not go in that direction because it really is like to the comic book character, the fact that he looks like Sting and is from Liverpool, uh, that he has this sort of British rock star pedigree really is like part of the character in a very intricate way. I have to say that I don't think that Keanu Reeves ruined it at all. I, I it, it works for me entirely. I, that's not my problem with the movie at all. But I don't know why they had just decided, okay, it has to be an American character, and he has to like not look like Sting. You know, when, when I hear Mel Gibson and Kevin Spacey, that says to me that they were going in a very different direction purposely, and I, and I can't for the life of me figure out why that would be. Could you imagine if they dyed Keanu's hair blonde for this movie. <laughs> I mean, what I think it would have worked. that have looked like? I think it would have been cool. Like, I think it would have worked. But the guy who plays him in the TV show is like much closer to what he's supposed to look like and, and what he's supposed to be. It's just that the TV show wasn't very good. You know what I want to see? I meant to say this earlier when we were talking about we want to see Keanu as the devil. I want a devil's advocate reboot with Keanu in the Pacino role. 
all-female Devil's Advocate reboot with Keanu. <laughs> in the... Who would play the Keanu part? Who would play the Keanu part? Zac Efron, obviously. You gotta, oh, you gotta... oh, yeah, stupid, <laughs> stupid question. <laughs> but, like, wait five years. Let's do a wait for Keanu to get a little bit older. Yeah. But then, yeah, Pacino is Keanu, and Keanu is Zac Efron. Works for me. And Charlize Theron is... Keanu is El Fanning. Selena Gomez. And... What did you say? Keanu's El Fanning? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Al Pacino is Leslie Mann. Nice. I was going to go with Sigourney Weaver as the Pacino role. Oh, nice. Peter Stormare will return in Henry's Crime, and then again, most recently, in John Wick Chapter 2. Ooh, right. So he'll be back a couple more times. There's nobody else aside from who we've already mentioned, Tilda and... Uh, oh, Rachel Vice is back from Chain Reaction. On that episode, I mentioned she's in the bathtub in both episodes in her clothes. So what's weird about watching the movie this time is that I, I finally understood why she was in the bathtub in this movie. As opposed to when we watched her Shia, I was like, oh, Shia's nowhere to be seen. I'm not really paying attention, but like that's such a crazy scene. I was like, what's going on? But now I that's know what's going weird, on. That's a weird power that Constantine has. He can just kind of visit hell for a couple minutes or send someone there just to like kind of snoop around. I mean, he does that, like, once or twice. It's like Yeah, a, and he, he's able to bring things back from hell, too. Right, yeah. He can sort of visit other planes of existence. He's almost like a little bit of a Doctor Strange. What's the word that he uses the cat as a familiar? Is that what it is? He says, like, they're one foot in and one foot out. Like, I guess he was implying they're half dead all the time, that a cat cats? has, like, mystical powers. <laughs> Speaking of cats, did you guys see the video of the turkeys doing the death dance around the cat? Yes. Uh, the weirdest thing. The weirdest thing. Uh, um, I have to now. So I have to, uh, there's, there's also, speaking of cats, there's one thing that I want to address here real quick. So I was, uh, for fun, reading some of the reviews of Constantine today. Okay. Um, and, there, and, you know, it's, it's, also, it's one of those movies where people kind of, as is obvious by the way that we've been talking about it, like there's a lot of love and a lot of hatred for this movie. Uh, and the... Rotten Tomatoes is like 46%, right? So it's one of those movies that's like right down the middle. And the people that love it just love it for its ridiculousness or whatever. But one of my favorite <laughs> excerpts is from Richard Corliss from Time Magazine, who actually gave it a favorable review. And he's one of my favorite critics. But the excerpt that <laughs> is on Rotten Tomatoes is this. And I think this is absolutely perfect. It says, Halfway through Constantine, a fully clad Keanu Reeves steps into a shallow pail of water, sits on a chair next to it, and holds a cat in his lap. That is like the only... (laughs) That's the the pull quote from that review, which is freaking fantastic. And that is like... and, And a little like you know, red tomato next to it being like, I recommend this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, speaking of critics, Roger Ebert put this on his most hated films list. Oh, makes sense. Yeah. Okay. I do feel like the Rotten Tomatoes around 50% is kind of where I'm going to find my favorite types of movies. Yeah. While the yeah, heart isn't really yeah. crazily reviewed, true romances around there. I don't like it as much as those, but like Jupiter Ascending is close. I mean, it's all like when you really swing for the fences and like still make contact, like it can't be like a swing and a miss. Right. But like when you still make contact, that's what I want to see. Like I want to see movies where I can just like sort of watch it like with my mouth open being like, how is any of this possible? Like the fact that not only was this me, but like we've been saying all along, it was made for a hundred million dollars is wonderfully bananas. 
I, I agree. It's on the other side of it, of the of the negative reviews, my favorite negative excerpt is from uh, the New York Observer. It's this guy, Andrew Saris, who just says the following, I deeply loathe the heaven and hell genre to which this cinematic comic book spectacular <laughs> belongs. And I'm, yeah, I'm like, okay, yeah. And I'm like, I feel both of those quotes, like, as I'm watching this movie. Like, I hate it with a passion as I'm watching it, but I'm also just so blown away by the weird, quirky things that are just so endearingly gung-ho, gusto, go for it, that it's it's so hard to have any sort of concrete opinion on this one way or the other. But I, I totally agree that I love when a movie has, especially a movie that I love, has like a 50% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> yeah. Because I just yeah. love it when it's like really divisive and people have these passionate feelings one way or the other. And they tend to be the movies that stick with me the most and are the most interesting. Some of them are just garbage and just like, you know, people who are paid to give them good reviews and that happens as well. But yeah, I always like when a movie that I love is like very mixed in its Rotten Tomato aggregate. I think there is something to be said that probably to this point, the two biggest swings and partial contact that Keanu's had, as not in terms of what he's done, but the film as a whole are probably this and The Devil's Advocate. Both of them are just like, I don't know what's going on, but I just want to keep watching it. Well, The Devil's Advocate's a lot more coherent than this movie is, but yeah, I mean, I agree in principle. It's it's similar enough, though, in yeah. like, just decisions are being made for one reason or another, and you might not know why. Yeah. Any last thoughts, John, about Constantine? Mr. John Constantine? No. After all this time and watching it again, I still don't know what I feel about this movie, but... It's a it's a kind of love. It's a kind of a an endearing love. Um, but no, I think we've pretty much covered everything. I'd be really yeah. curious to see like if anybody like how someone listens to this and then is like, do I want to see this movie or like, <laughs> I want like a survey after this goes up to know like, do you want to watch this movie after we've talked about it? And I and I hope it's like forty nine percent no and fifty one percent. Mike, any last thoughts that you didn't mention on the Shia episode or this episode that you really you can't go to your your heaven or your hell without <laughs> getting off your chest? Mike's about to die, by the way, guys. This is spoiler. Yeah, this is, we're saving this for the He's end. He's smoking but... thirty cigarettes a day since yeah. he was fifteen. <laughs> That's funny. Actually, watching this movie reminded me how much better I feel. It's been five years since I quit smoking. Haven't had a cigarette in five years. So watching Constantine, I was like, he should stop that. He shouldn't yeah. be doing that. Yeah. But I mean, I guess since John's here, and I hate to prolong this anymore, but I just had, I have to get this off my chest. Like, okay, so the movie kind of really made me feel like an idiot for not knowing what the Spear of Destiny was. Oh, God, how do we not talk about the Spear of Destiny yet? Oh, my God, I completely forgot <laughs> so about So I just this. need to know, like, a little bit because Rachel Weisz is like of course I know what the spirit destiny is like I was raised a Catholic and I was like well I mean I wasn't raised a Catholic but I know the general stuff about what went down and I'm no, I don't know anything about this so I only know about it because Wikipedia explains it this is a horrific oversight that we didn't talk about the spirit destiny so before I get on that one of the things that I again this is a, a trope not of movies but of the Catholic Church which Anytime a movie is mentioned, or anything Catholicism is like addressed in a movie in any capacity, pretty much 95% of the time the Catholic Church will complain that that movie is anti-Catholic, regardless of how it actually feels about Catholicism. So there's really nothing in this movie that I can interpret it in any way as being anti-Catholic, aside from the fact that, like... I don't know. They talk about the fact that, like, if you commit suicide, you go to hell, which is still Catholic doctrine. So... I guess they're upset that they brought that up and made it seem unfair. I like I don't know, but but whatever. It's 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 not an anti-Catholic movie. It's too innocent of a movie and too weird and incoherent of a movie to be anti-anything. But the Spear of Destiny is the spear that 
according to the Gospel of John, pierced Jesus in the side during his crucifixion. And so it contains the blood of Christ, and the blood of Christ has, obviously, magical, transcendent powers. So as it's happened with so many things associated with the sort of mythologized crucifixion that appears in the Gospels, over the ensuing centuries, as the idea of reliquary became more and more a fixture in kind of medieval Christianity, a relic is any object that's associated with um, any saint. Usually it's like the skull of, you know, John the Baptist or something like that, right? And rarely were they authentic, but they had a kind of symbolic religious significance to them. So the mother load of all the relics were the, were the ones that were most associated with Jesus. So the three probably most commonly known and biggest ones are the Shroud of Turin, the True Cross, the Holy Cross, and the Spear of Destiny. So the Shroud of Turin was believed to be the shroud in, under, in which Jesus was buried before being resurrected. And the reason that it looks like it's like a burnt image is that his resurrection was like made of light or something. And so it created this like burned image on the shroud. The true cro- And that's been in other movies too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? That's, uh, yeah. And that's, everybody kind of knows There's a lot of that. movies. The true cross is the idea that the actual cross on which Jesus was crucified was you know, preserved, which is historical nonsense. I mean, there's just no way that the Romans would have been like let's save this you know it's nothing it was <laughs> it was likely reused or like chopped down for fire or something like that but it, once i not ironically constantine became really interested in this idea of retracing the roots of Christianity after he converted, his mother actually went on a quest to find the true cross, St. Helena, and she came back with what was believed to be a piece of the true cross, and it was held in the Vatican for a long time. So the other one is the Spear of Destiny, and this of the three of them is probably the most absurd to believe it exists. You really have to take a lot of leaps of faith. It only is mentioned in one gospel, and, and it's it's the latest gospel, and there really is just no way for it to ever believe that like it's a real thing. But there were people that believed it was a real thing. And there's there's all these like conspiracy theories around it. And the most famous one, and it's really difficult to figure out where the conspiracy theory begins and where history ends as far as this goes, but concerns Hitler. So there's this whole myth that Hitler believed in the Spear of Destiny and believed that it could be his key to controlling the world and that he was obsessed with finding it and that he did find it. That's sort of where the conspiracy theory part comes in. From what I know about Hitler and what I know about his strange and unique obsession with the occult and mythology that he invented and his obsession with Wagner, Wagner uses the Spear of Destiny in one of his operas. And and so it's likely that this is something that appealed to Hitler symbolically, but it's not certain and not not well defined as to like how much he really believed it existed or really pursued it whatever but the conspiracy theory goes that he found the spear of destiny and that is why the nazis were able to essentially control the world for a short period of time but he lost the spear of destiny to george Patton, who when he lost the spear of destiny like he died and so like if you lose the spear of destiny like it's a curse and if you have it you can like control the world or or whatever it almost certainly doesn't exist. That whole thing is almost certainly a, a made-up after-the-fact conspiracy theory. But the idea of it is something that has been has permeated Western civilization and sort of come in and out of favor for a long time and was probably resurrected by Hitler because Wagner used it as he used so much other Western folklore in his opera. Hitler was heavily inspired by Wagner. So he used it as part of his like crazy Nazi mythology as part of why the Nazis were the, were the destined chosen 
chosen people to sort of inherit the earth. So the beginning of the movie where it says, nobody knows where it's been since World War II. Well, nobody knew where it was during World War II either. That's nonsense. But it's a nod to sort of this, this crazy, weird sort of hybrid of Christianity and Western myth and Nazi evil imagery, whatever. It's a perfect thing to use for this particular movie. Because in the context of this movie and its craziness, that story actually makes sense. So yes, thank you for bringing that up. I've been dying to talk about that and, and I completely forgot about it. Because as you can forget, plot points of this movie fairly easily, as the movie seems to forget most of its plot points throughout most of the course of the movie, it, it, it's pretty easy to let one of those go by the wayside. But yes, that's the that's the Spear of Destiny. Is that what Wikipedia basically says, Joey? Or is it, or am I, did, I, did I miss anything from the... Wikipedia basically says it's the spear with the blood from Jesus' side on it. That's all it says. That's so all it says? Okay. It's a much more succinct way, but not as in-depth as what you said. Yeah, yeah. So it's probably a, not a thing. It's probably not a real thing, but it's, a, it's certainly a, a legend that goes back quite some time. And yes, did have an association with Nazis and the Holocaust and World War II and all that stuff. So there you cool. go. For all things Keanu Club and all the episodes that John's done, and he'll be on one more, Man of Tai Chi, which is in about eight episodes from now, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub. You can see all the episodes we've done. You can see all the shows on our network. We have a show that launched just last month, P.S. I Love Hoffman, which is like this, but for Philip Seymour Hoffman, with two other people who aren't us, so that's exciting for me. We have new shows coming out later this year. We've got all sorts of fun, free things for you to listen to at those two places. You can also follow us now on Twitter, at Cage Club Pod. So that's cool, too. We're not running that. It's great. I love when other people want to do things for me. It's <laughs> it's amazing. And that Twitter is, like, better than I could ever ask for, so go follow that because it's really, really great. Like, if you liked at all what we talked about here, you'll love that Twitter because it's just, it's just wonderful. So cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, twitter.com, at Cage Club Pod. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that was John Brooks, and we'll see you next time on Keanu Club. on a bench.